And it's not, and again, I'm not looking for business from these people. Yeah. I want to, you know, I, it feels good to me. And if it feels good to you, you'll have a better energy about you. You make somebody's day and you never know where it'll lead, but it could lead somewhere great. And, but, but, but more importantly, it'll nourish you as a person. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world. If you learn to weave a network of people who trust you, who feel heard, understood, and valued in your presence, there will always be someone willing to hire you, buy from you, or work with you. So what are you waiting for? Let's go Beyond Networking. Well, hello, Brian Miller here, and if you're new to this show, I'm a former professional magician turned author, speaker, coach, and consultant on human connection. I'm currently running virtual team-building workshops for organizations. I'm doing business and entrepreneurial one-on-one -on -one coaching, and I run leadership masterminds, which are typically for internal use at organizations to groom their current leaders or groom younger folks for leadership positions. But for the first time ever, I'm actually opening up a public version of my leadership mastermind. That's gonna open in late May of 2020, this year. Details to follow, but in the meantime, if you wanna jump on the waiting list, I already have more folks on the waiting list than I'm even going to have spots available, so I do expect this to fill up the second the uh, slots become available. But in the meantime, if you do want to get on the waiting list, head to brianmillerspeaks.com slash join. Pop in your email. Check the box that says public wait list. I'll tell you a little bit more about the mastermind at the end of this episode. But for now, let's get to my guest. I find it difficult to describe Rich, so this will be a very short introduction. I think you're better off just diving in and getting to know him over the course of our conversation. But for context, Rich is a family attorney who mostly works on divorce cases. I know, it doesn't sound very exciting, and if I'm being honest, I really wasn't looking forward to this conversation. Don't get me wrong, I love Rich. I know him personally. Uh, he was actually a client of mine many years ago. He hired me back when I was a full-time magician. We've stayed in touch. He is a wonderful, wonderful human being, but, you know, he's a lawyer. Do I really want to talk to a lawyer? Well, it turns out I really, really did. Rich came over to uh, to my house, to my studio in a time before social distancing a couple of months ago. If you're listening to this sometime in the future and wondering where this took place in the timeline of the 2020 pandemic, we recorded this back in, I believe, January, a couple of months before we uh, here in the United States got into the uh, the heavy uh, the the heavy part of the crisis. So Rich came over to my house. We sat down on my couch, put a few mics up, and just started talking. And let me tell you, you are in for a treat. We're going to talk about the value of being multidimensional. We're going to talk about the role of luck in success, uh, the transition from doing corporate law to family law. You're going to hear all about what it's really like to be in the family law business. And it's really a different conversation than I was expecting, much more aligned with maybe being um, a therapist or a counselor than with an attorney. It's all about empathy and perspective taking, you know, the stuff that I deeply care about and have made my life's work. And I really wasn't expecting to connect with Rich on that level during this conversation. So there's so many different topics we're going to go over. Make sure you stay tuned all the way to the end of the episode for my three big takeaways, as always. And without further ado, please enjoy this lovely, lovely conversation with a lovely, lovely man, Rich Rochlin. Rich, thank you so much for being here. I really, really do appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. It's such a pleasure. We, we've known each other for a couple of years. Actually, more than a couple of years now. Yeah. I, I feel like I was a baby magician when we first met. Uh, probably, it could be it could be as much as eight or ten. Could be. Yeah, I wanted to say eight or nine years ago. Yeah, we uh, we met through actually someone who helped launch this podcast, which was Pam Pedos. Oh, I love Pam. 
mutual friend of ours, uh, you know, and 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 so we got connected through her a million years ago. So let let's start first with your what you're up to right now. So if you're at a cocktail party or a social gathering these days and right. someone asks you, what do you do? <sighs> I know, yeah. I know. What's your answer these days? So, well, I mean, I've always been very particular about that question because, you know, as much as what you do for a living is is really sort of the main thing about you, you spend eight, 10 hours a day doing that. So it does form sort of who you are in some ways. But I also like to know, like what makes people happy? Like, what do you, what do you do to make you happy? What are your other things? But you know, the job is an important thing. What do you do? Well, you're a speaker, a magician, I'm an attorney, right? So that's, that's my profession. I've been an attorney 20 years. Um, but you know, I'm restoring a 66 Mustang in my driveway. Um, I'm a dad to, uh, three kids, five, almost four and eight month old, uh, a husband to a beautiful wife. And, uh, so, uh, what, what am I doing? I'm doing mostly family law, um, mm. divorce, custody, those kinds of things. I work on my car, play with my kids, uh, try to be a good husband, all of those things. So that, that's what's going on now, really. I, I got to tell you, I have asked that question dozens of times on this podcast. I've asked, you know, if you're at a cocktail party and someone asks, what do you do? How do you answer? Because I like to start there. And, I'm, and I have hoped dozens of times somebody would give me an answer that wasn't their job. No one ever has until you. <laughs> that that is the first oh, time good. ever that someone gave me an answer yeah. that wasn't just um, their, their job or uh, you know. Yeah. But you know, and and people will go, well, that's hard to answer because like this is technically my job, but like I have these different aspects, and that's interesting. But but I love that you immediately kind of roped in your family, your hobbies, all the other things that 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 when someone says what do you do you could answer with it doesn't have to be your well, job well right and i think we can talk about that in, in how it yeah. relates to connection because yeah. one of the things about and we can talk about my background and what's you know how i where i was raised and what i my family and these types of things because what i found is as somebody who's a solo practitioner effect essentially the uh, you know somebody who works on their own i'm a salesperson right i have to mm. sell my 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 wares right and i perform services and i'm selling not widgets but i'm selling a product me and so I, not only am I a lawyer, but I'm a salesperson. I have to generate sales to keep my business afloat and to, and to pay my bills. Um, and so part of that, I think, also is um, being multidimensional. Uh, and most people are multidimensional, but also sharing that with people so you can make a connection with them. And then that person will say, you know, this guy's not just a lawyer. He's going to be somebody who's listening to me. I can identify with him. He's talking about interesting things with me. I'm curious about them. Um, and that's such an important part of growing a business where I'm selling myself. So that's that's part of it. See that that I'm selling myself. I think that that phrase is really, really important right now because I find myself so often over the last couple of years telling people, you know, you know, you know, you're a, everybody's in sales. Everybody's a marketer now, you know, and people are like, no, 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 I'm not in marketing. I'm like, then you have misunderstood what you're doing right now. Right. Because you're everybody all the time if you're in a job interview you're selling yourself if you are um you know if you're in a, a writer of any kind you're selling ideas you know uh, you can sell a product or a service obviously like we are all trying to pitch ourselves or an idea or a product or a service to somebody in hopes of getting them on board with whatever we're doing um and i and and i right away want to ask how you feel about this movement in authenticity. I'm seeing this this phrase on the internet a lot. It's become a real buzzword, authenticity. And I feel like people have misunderstood authenticity to mean you should be sharing photos of what you had for breakfast on Instagram, right? right? And so you just talked about your you know sharing your hobbies and your your personal life. How do you navigate when you're sharing enough to make a connection versus too much to seem unprofessional? Mm. Yeah, that's you know, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the old expression, you know, being, being a lady is like being powerful. If you have to tell me you are, you're not right. <laughs> you know, like someone says, someone's, I don't think I've ever heard that. No, right. But if somebody says, well, I'm a lady, like, well, if you have to tell me that you're probably not <laughs> uh, right. It's just like saying, yeah. well, I'm powerful. Well, mm. if you have to tell me you're not yeah. right. And so there is, you know, genuineness, which is, I think, sort of a, a, a part of what authenticity is, um, is just sort of how you live, you know, your life without, in, you're not intending to do that. It's just who you are. You have a genuine curiosity. And some people probably have to work harder at that. Mm -hmm. I just feel that 
I am who I am. I don't put on airs. I want to help people. And and it probably comes from the fact that I'm from you know the first in my family to go to college from a really? working class family. Well, um, I'm, I don't yeah. mean to interrupt. What what did what did your parents do uh, professionally? If you don't mind me asking. So uh, you know both of my uh, uh, my my dad left the family when I was a few months old. So I I'm was sorry. raised by a single mom. I met my dad when I was 38. I was no raised kidding. by a, I was raised by a single mother. Um, my mother is very intelligent, but she she has a high school education, which mm-hmm. is fine. She worked uh, uh, she worked at the Veterans Administration in, in a uh, an administrative role. She mostly had administrative positions and whatnot. Um, we, you know, we survived on Section Eight and oil assistance and mm-hmm. food stamps. Um, luckily for me, I was I tested well, and uh, my mom put me into. Um, private schools because uh, the nursery school folks said to my mom, look, you know, there's a, there's a, you have sort of this, this great piece of clay here, if you will. Mm -hmm. But the problem with little boys without dads, as we now know from all of the studies is especially smart little boys without dads is it goes two paths. Either they go to jail they, they enter juvenile delinquency very early and then their life falls apart. Um, or they can do really well and excel. And so you really should get him in a place that can, and I'm also highly distractible. So <laughs> you got to get him somewhere where it's a smaller class where somebody can focus and challenge him. So my mom, knowing that, got me into private schools. I tested well and we were poor. So I got scholarships and mm-hmm. I was able to go to, um, we lived in a town that, that didn't really have a great public school system. It was large. And so she got me into private schools and through high school, I went to private schools on scholarships but that saved me because I needed that, and you know, without the the rudder of a father, uh, and um, and without you know a forty kids in a class, I would have been in trouble. So I have a very unique perspective where you know I can you know you know then I I ultimately went you know I'm jumping a little ahead, but I went sure. to college in D.C. at American University, and then I went to to law school at UConn, and then I went to a big law firm, twelve hundred lawyer firm, and sort of was doing you know large corporate finance deals. So. Right. You know, but at the same time, also I worked for electrical contractors and plumbing contractors in college. My grandfather was an HVAC guy, so you know I can build a house and do the plumbing and the electrical. I know how to do all that stuff. <laughs> so like I can be on a job site with bricklayers and totally fit in, but I can be in a boardroom with CEOs and totally fit in. So I have this unique perspective where I can sit down with whomever it is. I don't put on airs. I don't have any judgment. I can relate to the guys that are laying bricks and relate to the guys that are the CEOs. And that gives me such an advantage. You know, that, re- that first of all, there's like 43 different questions <laughs> I have based on what you just sure, told sure, me. Sure. So I- I'm going to see if I can find yeah, all yeah, of them it, as we it. go. But that just, my instinct, as you said, that is something I had forgotten. I used to get asked a lot when I was a magician by, once, once I had kind of made it. Well, you're and, still a musician. Well, sure, sure, heart. sure. It's but when I was a full-time, a full-time, was, musician, a full-time yes. professional musician. Um, and I mean I, that in a good way, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no I, I appreciate that. That's, that's in the heart. So, but you know, when I was a full-timer and I had made it and, you know, it's in, in the digital age, right. there's not that many magicians that you can see that, that are like successful without being famous. And so once you're that, you start getting emails and messages from younger performers and aspiring magicians. And, and I started getting a lot of those asking for help and advice. And one of the pieces of advice I found myself giving younger aspiring magicians constantly was totally out of left field to them, which I used to find myself saying, if you want to be a great magician, study lots of different things, take lots of different classes, learn as much about different parts of the world as you can. Because when you're in front of an audience, the more stuff you know, the more chances you have to connect with that particular audience. And that's not what they were expecting from how do I become a magician, right? So that aspect, it it sounds like you ended up in that situation by happenstance or circumstance. It doesn't sound like that's something you deliberately no. sought out. Just, so I, I, I'm going to jump to a question I've normally been reserving for the end of these sure. conversations lately. I've been obsessed lately with the role that luck plays in success. Uh, um, I'm actually uh, something that very few people know right now, and I may decide to cut this later if I don't want people to know yet, uh, but I'm in the middle of working on my second book. I've been actively working on it for for a while now, and it is all about the role of luck and success. Um, do you believe in luck? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I do know that there, you know, there's, it, it, it surely, it does seem, uh, that people that work hard tend to be more lucky mm-hmm. <laughs> or yeah. luckier. Um, 
I, I don't know the answer to that the, the sort of the universe. Sometimes I think things happen. Um, uh, I'm not sold on it. I would say I'm sort mm. of maybe, <laughs> I, I, and I know that's not an answer you so, like, but so I, I, I don't, I mean, this, this, this moment is exactly why I'm writing the book is because people don't know how they feel. They use the language of luck a lot until you ask them directly about it. Right. We talk about, Oh man, that what I find really interesting is, when you think about the people that you kind of consider your professional rivals or maybe people you're jealous of, whenever they're really successful, they're always lucky, right? Whenever someone you're a rival of, when you're- Yeah, you that's always, typical, you, right? right? But, you but, but, but I just, study them and see that that's not the case though. Right, but exactly, right? You always feel about yourself. I feel like I always feel, well, when I'm successful, that wasn't luck. I worked really hard for that. I made all these moves. When some I see someone else do it, it's like, well, they just got really lucky. I mean, look how lucky that was. And so my question is, is it- is it that people who work really hard tend to be more lucky or is it just people who are really lucky end up being the successful ones? Well, and that's why we think that. It, it could be. It could also be that, for instance, you, you, you're you not comparing two race cars, right? Mm. We're human beings and the, the brain is so complex and it's shaped and formed by our childhoods, by our parents. So for instance, you know, when we, I didn't go to Christmas parties at the Hartford Golf Club we're CEOs and doctors, and I'm going on, you know, ski trips with those kids. I don't, you know, so so some folks have access to people that have power, that have influence, and maybe they get an internship somewhere that I couldn't have gotten because I don't run in those circles. So is that part of luck that got them that internship so that their roommate in college was the son of the Hartford CEO mm. and then came out, they gave him an entry-level job? They golf, they go on vacations together. And before you know it, they're in some place. They could still work hard. They could still be smart. But they had the luck to be born into that family that or the fortune to be born into that family that gave them those opportunities. So that, that is a component of it, I think. Um, and you still, in my view, in most cases, still have to have the chops. You can't just be, you know, one of these guys that, you know, we say what uh, all hat, no cattle, you know, mm. you can't be, you, you got to still have the chops in most cases. Um, but there is that component by your, your who to whom you were born, the family you were born to, that does present other opportunities that really could advance your career faster and farther than people that say don't have that. So I tend to agree with you on on that a lot. One of the things I'm I'm looking into, I feel like I I couldn't do a book on luck justice without acknowledging the role that privilege plays in success, well, sure. right? So like that that aspect of being born into the right family. I think you're very right though. A hundred years, you might've been able to uh, coast on just being in the right family, but that is gone. I think you can Absolutely. be born to the right family. You got, you got a head start in that race, but there's a lot of people right behind you that are gonna catch up real quick if you don't have the chops and, and the And that's the beauty of America. That's not in other countries, you don't see that. Like in England, for instance, mm. like your dad's a bricklayer, you're not gonna become president. You know, yeah. Bill Clinton was raised in a trailer park with his abusive stepfather and he became president of the United States and he yeah. was a Rhodes Scholar, all those different things. That's unique to us. And what makes us, we can come out of that mm. sort of caste system or other countries, you know, you're a working class family. It's very hard, nearly impossible to break out of it. It's interesting. I wonder if that's changing at all, though, with the digital revolution and with what the Internet is doing to oh, kind of flatten perhaps. the playing field. I, I wonder if we're going to see less of that. Uh, or, or see more opportunities for anybody in other countries, right. uh, kind of like the the archetypal American um, idea, you know, si simply because everyone with a smartphone now has access oh, right. to virtually everything. That's right. Um, so, so that's that's curious. Yeah, uh, I'm also especially curious because your answer was immediately about people who had kind of privileged upbringings and all these additional opportunities, but yours was specifically the opposite of that, and yet. Right. You didn't have that privileged upbringing. You I didn't, didn't. You didn't. You weren't born into that. And yet you found all of this success through all of the same kinds of circumstances. And that that that, well, that's, that that's makes right. me very curious. And, and, and sort of that's the that's the irony of me. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, the, the uh, or, or, the, or the right. So the yes. And so how. Right. So how did I do? Well, I sure I was at private school, but I was the okay. poor kid at private school. So private school, you're playing with different folks as well. But um but also, does being the poor kid at private school make you work harder? No, not for me. Okay, uh, I was still, I still had my issues. Uh, I didn't work as hard as I should have. Um, so when did that work ethic start? Then where did that come from? Because I, I've found 
a lot of people who are really successful, you'd think they were always like no. that. I found most of those people developed that work ethic much later in life than you would expect. That's right. I think I've, I think I'm much, I'm certainly much smarter, even though, you know, I, there's this whole thing about IQ and it's, it's supposed to be the same really from the time you're seven yeah. and up. I yeah. think I've, I think I'm much smarter than I, than I was a long time ago, much more mm. experienced. Um, where did the work ethic come from? I think the work ethic came from, you know, I think if you, if you talk to folks who knew me and so I've been a lawyer 20 years, looked at me in the first 10 years, they wouldn't say as good of things about me as a lawyer and my work ethic as they would in the second half. And the mm. reason is, is because I'm doing something that I really enjoy. Okay. So when, when did that flip? So let's go back to those 43 questions yes. I had. So you, you have this story where the first half or maybe not the first half, but for a while you were doing the big corporate thing. Yeah, big corporate law, um, you know, in a room. You're not dealing with real – you're not dealing with clients with day-to-day problems. You're dealing with hedge funds that are, that are you know, buying an oil company in Houston. Mm, and so you're sounds... drafting – you're reviewing documents. You're drafting documents. You're sending it to some other lawyer in New York City who's there at 1 o'clock in the morning, who's been there all night. And Did it uh, beat you down over time or did you have like a TV moment where you're like, this is the le- this case and that's I can't do this anymore? And no, I, I think at some point the um, the partners where I were were like, this isn't for you kind of Oh, thing. really? Yeah. They so came somebody to, else saw it more somebody than Somebody saw that, right. Did. And I was young. I didn't know anything really. I was in my, you know, I went to, so I'm 44. I was, I, I came a lawyer when I was 24 or 25. I went right from college to law school. So mm-hmm. I was what? 30 years old. And what do you know at 30 years old? Nothing. Nothing. So, you know, and then I, I went and then I, from there I bounced to a couple other corporate gigs uh, and I did that. And then I went off on my own and uh, I was, I was doing, I was still doing the corporate work, which is very hard to do if you're sort of a smaller law firm, you can get litigation work, but not corporate work. It's, it's sort of a strange thing. Mm-hmm. That's for a whole, that's for a different podcast <laughs> and it's way too inside baseball, but, <laughs> but I was testifying in court on behalf of a company um, who was who was the main asset in the divorce, and a lawyer um, came uh, came up to me uh, who was on the other side, and the judge sort of pulled me aside and said, "You know, you really should come in for your client, not as this corporate lawyer testifying. But you should do this divorce work." And I said, "It's the first time I've been in court since I was sworn in ten years ago. What are you <laughs> court? What are you talking about? Trial?" They're like, "No, no, no. We asked about we asked around about you. You have good pedigree." You'd be great at this kind of work. There's just something about you'd be great at this kind of work. It's like a, this is a chance encounter, but I have another yeah. story too. But so the judge said that to me and she says, I used to work with one of the partners who who know, knew you. I asked about you because I was testifying for a couple of days and they said, you'd be a great at this. And the other lawyer said, listen, and this is one of the premier uh, divorce attorneys who's now a mentor of mine who became a mentor of mine. He said, you know, we can work together on this case and we'll get it resolved. And this is a case where hundreds of thousands had already been spent on legal fees and all of these things. And so I went to my client. I said, listen, you know, the judge sort of said, your lawyers, you know, you're in, you're in a, you're in a bad spot. The other lawyer said, they can say, would you have confidence in me coming in to try to settle this case? It's been going on for two years. And he says, I would, you know, he's an entrepreneur type, you know, five, you know, you just trust his gut kind of guy. He's like, I would. So I said, all right. So I wound up doing that. I met with the other lawyer, got up to speed and I had the case settled in two weeks. Wow. And it had gone on for years. So the other lawyer who had brought me in said, listen, don't refer your divorce cases out anymore. You've got to do this work and I'm going to help you. You come to me, I'll help you through it. And before you know it, I'm just, that's what I'm doing. And I love it and I have a knack for it. And it was literally just because I was testifying in court and a judge sort of saw something in me that you'd be good at this. She was the presiding judge of family, Judge O'Lear, I'll give her name. I mean, she's still a judge. That's fine. Um, And the other lawyer's name was Steve Dembo, who's a friend of mine and still my mentor, one of the premier divorce attorneys around. And he helped me. And then before you know it, you know, we're, you know, 40 active cases and that's what I do. Wow. Um, and how, how long ago was that? That, that you was made that probably transition? 2011, 2012. Okay. It's probably right around the time we met, actually. That's right. Because, uh, yeah, because the, the way we met was, uh, I think we met because you hired me to do magic at a baby shower for your first kid. That's, your f- oh, that was the extravaganza. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yes, it, yes. It, it was an extravaganza. <laughs> I remember, I remember... <laughs> when you called and described it going, this guy's full of it. There's no way I've done these events before. They're not, that was some crazy. Yeah, that was why I think I have the video. It's on Vimeo. You can link it when you post this. So people can put it in the show. We had a marching band. It was was a New Orleans marching band. It was like a, I don't know, 15, 12 piece band. It was nuts. Yeah, it was great. I remember coming uh, well, I was going to say coming back and telling Lindsay, obviously that couldn't have been true if it was that long. Well, I'll tell you what it was. So we met, yeah. my son was born in November of 20, 
14? Yeah, so so we started, yeah, so, okay, it was Lindsay. So uh, we started dating in 2013. There you um, go. So it, it actually, I, I had that in my memory. I'm like, I really felt like, I like you it was. Brought, did you bring her? I thought maybe no, she came, you called I, her I, and I didn't, over. but I feel like you might think that because on Facebook we're connected and we see each oh, other's yeah, yeah, photos yeah, 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 go yeah, around yeah, yeah. so all right. often. I thought maybe she came. But yeah, no, yeah. We, had, we had six different chefs. I had all my connect, all my people that I've connected with. It was they wild. All, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. That's all um, right. They all connected with and uh, yeah, so that's, but that's where that's uh you know sort of where the uh where the came, but that's when it happened and then my whole practice then shifted yeah and this is all i do now and and and, and for a while i had a hard time telling people you know as a lawyer you say well what do you do well you don't want to turn business away but now i just say to people i do divorce work but i say to people mm. whatever your problem is come to me i'll triage it and i'll get you to the right guy um but i i don't you know i, I take some litigation but that's so it. that that i feel like would have been easy to just let that go for anybody who's listening to slip right past that. If if you're going into not everybody who listens to this is going to be self-employed or I, I, I try not to go. It's easy for me to go into the self-employed entrepreneurship conversation and you forget that like the vast majority of people are not doing that and have no interest. Right. And and there's nothing better about being self-employed than being it's just a different thing. But for anybody who's listening who might go into being self-employed or 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 uh, an entrepreneur or whatever. Uh, that point you just made about I let anybody come to me and I do my best to point them in the right direction, even if it's not me. And it's probably not me. Right. That for me has been exactly the key to my success, a apart from building connections. Right. Part, that's the key to everything. Right. But outside of that, the the having the confidence to say to people, I'm not for you. Oh, for sure. But that person is, or I know this person, and that's actually part of being a connector, right? Not just making your own connections, but being the one who goes, nope, I'm not the one. I won't take your money because I'm not the right. I could take your money. I do a mediocre job. Right. It's not You're for not going to be happy with me. Right, exactly. And I'm not going to be happy working with it, but I know exactly who's for you. Uh, that I just wanted to like hone in on that right. for a second. That's and, so and, important. And as a pro tip for folks that are you know, building a business of some kind, one, it's the right thing to do. A lot yeah. of lawyers make getting huge, huge problems. I'm a, I sit on the grievance panel in Middlesex County and lawyers get grieved. You know, there's a disciplinary body that, mm. you know, that means, you know, we have licensure and, 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 and a lot of the grievances that come in and where lawyers get in trouble is they take on something, their heart's not in it. They take the money, they screw the whole thing up or they don't do anything. They don't call the people back. And then suddenly they're facing a suspension of their license. Mm. So the, the first important thing, most important thing is, you know, you got to put your ego aside and say, look, I, I'm not going to be good at this. And even though you need to you know, the light bill is coming due. Yeah. You got to push it away. The second thing is you build, you build a goodwill with other lawyers. So the other mm -hmm. lawyers will say, Rich is my divorce guy. He sends me this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's doing that. Um, And then people will appreciate it. And they'll say, look, I, I, I tell them that I say, look, I'm not your guy for that. I, I'm not going to do a good job on this. I won't. And you're going to hate me and it's not fair and it's, it's unscrupulous mm -hmm. and take it. And, uh, and then the other, and, and you got to make sure that who, you know, the person you're sending it to is got to be, Rock solid because right. that's a reflection of you. Um, and actually, there's actually some a legal problem too. If that person screws up, you could actually be you can actually be sued for negligent referral. It's different mm. as a lawyer, but you yeah, that doesn't sure. happen as a magician. No, as a magician, nobody right. comes back to me and <laughs> like, you know, this guy sucked at card tricks, right, and right. I'm suing like, I, you. I saw what he did, right? <laughs> so, but you just got to be mindful of that. But yeah, yeah, that's part of the connection, and you make the connection, and you call them and say, "Hey, Brian, I'm sending you somebody," and you're like, "Oh, Rich is my guy. I'm making. He, he thinks of me." So okay, I I'm like overwhelmed with your enthusiasm <laughs> for being an attorney, for being a lawyer. And yeah, yeah. what I want to ask is, I think the average person, if you ask them, if you mention the word lawyer or attorney, they're going to clam up. They have, there's this, there's a stereotype out there of what that is from TV or the movies, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Can you, what are some of the misconceptions about being an attorney well, I'll, or a lawyer? I'll, I'll answer that, but first I'll give you a non-responsive answer. <laughs> then I'll be responsive as lawyers. I say, first of all, I think the, 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 the sort of the Criticism of attorneys is skin deep, right? Everyone says, oh, you're a shark, you're a lawyer, you're, 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 you're a dirtbag. You know, there's all this theory. Yeah. But I always find that skin deep because as soon as you have a problem, right? If you were in a problem, you'd say, you got to call Rich or you got to call Dave. He's my guy. He's a good guy. And he's going to get me out of this problem. So everyone sort of jokes about lawyers, but when they have a problem, they go to their lawyer because they want to get them out and they recognize yeah. it's, a, it's a very good system that we have. And you got to find somebody who's competent to sort of navigate you through that. Um, misconceptions about lawyers. Not all lawyers make a lot of money. Interesting. Not all lawyers like a lot. There's plenty of lawyers that come out of law school, first time lawyers that, that can make, you know, at a first time job, 45 or $50,000 and they have $200,000 in debt. Right. Um, so right. 
there's, you know, the, the, that's a huge misconception that lawyers are all rich. Not yeah. true. Um, and, and in fact, the, um, a lot of solo practitioners don't make a lot of money. It takes a long time to make a lot of money. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, so there's that, um, what's another misconception that, um, uh, all lawyers may love their job. They don't. Um, a lot of mm. most, uh, lawyers have a very high suicide rate, mm. uh, very high job dissatisfaction rate, lots of stress. Um, to to what do you know to what that's attributed the high jobs dissatisfaction because I I've I'd heard that before that that's on the dissatisfaction end of the spectrum whereas um, especially with with high priced lawyers really high a lot of, right a lot of them are very dissatisfied actually the ones who make a lot of money and then on the other side you have like like teachers and nurses who make very little and are un, theoretically underappreciated have incredibly high job satisfaction, right? Which is, I've always found really interesting. It's not, the money doesn't rarely correlates. Um, what happens in, in your field that leads to job dissatisfaction? Well, I think, well, it could be that folks are chasing the money, not chasing what they like. Okay. There's that that's sort of a sort of you'd find anywhere, right? They're yeah. chasing uh, and, um, and it depends what they're doing. Um, a lot of lawyers, um, don't you know it takes it takes a lot of um, courage to go off on your own mm. um, and to explore different areas. Um, remember, lawyers unlike doctors. Doctors have a residency program, mm. so they are under the watchful eye of another physician for a very long time, and they get to train. You take the bar exam and you pass. You can do anything that Alan Dershowitz can do or Lee Bailey can do. So you have the same license. <laughs> I had not considered that. Yeah, right. That so it's really wild. Weird. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. There's no training. <laughs> I mean, you go to a big firm, you're trained and, you know, you're not unleashed to the world, uh, you know, to, to go to court and all of these things. But but ostensibly, you could get your license and, you know, do a murder trial the next week. I mean, that like it's even crazy. like my wife's an, an LMFT, a licensed marriage and family yeah. therapist, who I'm sure you know well. Yeah. That, uh, in oh, they have to put the hours in. Right. They even after they've done their four years of undergrad, three plus years to a master's, they have two more years to a license. All like and thousands of hours. They're being hours. supervised yeah. constantly. And they take a test. Right. Right, a test, and then you have to re-up it regularly. And like, because they're dealing with people's mental health, there's this unbelievably high bar. You'd think there would be that bar for people in charge of legal issues. It's insane. And there's talk about re, uh, sort of looking at that again, um, where how it used to be, you know, 200 years ago, where, you know, you'd have to do an apprenticeship. And that's when there weren't really law schools and you'd have to go out there and you'd work under a lawyer. Um, uh, and that's a big problem, especially for new lawyers, where if they can't get a job at a big firm or a firm won't hire them and they have to hang up their own shingle. Uh, you know, I help young lawyers sometimes that I'll meet and they'll call me and like, how do I do this? I'm like, you're doing that. Like, are you in, whoa, like you're, <sighs> that's a landmine brother. I mean, this profession is filled with landmines and luckily huh. as you get more experienced and if you sort of keep your ego in check, you could spot them, right? You know, like sort of keep here, but I mean. Two, three times a month, I'm calling other lawyers saying, how do I navigate this? This is a nightmare. Like a client told me something, told me something that they're going to do that's fraudulent. There's an attorney-client privilege, but Mm. there's a whole series of case law and statutes and ethics rules about if a client tells you they're doing something fraudulent, does that trump the attorney-client confidentiality and the privilege? And in fact, it does. And how do you get out of a case but protecting their interest? So it's it's a landmine. Landmines are everywhere. And without any training – you know, you, you have someone's livelihood in their hands. I mean, you have yeah. sometimes you have their life in your hand, their 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 liberty in your hands. Yeah. So it's it's it it can be, you know, that can be stressful. Um, but I, I think that so the satisfaction so back to your question about the job satisfaction, I think it relates to uh people chasing money instead of chasing something that sort of nourishes them. Mm. Uh and 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 for me, I found something that I really enjoy because I'm helping real people with real problems. Um you're also sort of helping them get through a relationship problem, mm. which is sort of interesting, right? They're they're now in court in litigation with somebody they used to love mm. at one time, or maybe still love, but they're angry with, and they made children with. And so this is the first time they're in court, but it's not only the first time they've been in court, they're in the first time in court with somebody that's the father or mother of their children that they loved or still loved, that may have had an affair, so they're angry with them. And I have to manage all of that. And which is much different than a hedge fund saying, yeah, we're, you know, we're spending $300 million. We're buying this oil company, you know, do all the due diligence, do the contract. We'll wire the money when it's ready. And they're happy. They sign the deal and they're done. Here is, I'm going to take you through this process, get you divorced, help you set up a new household, Mm. how you're going to share your kids, how you're going to survive on, you know, each having one income. Is there going to be child support? Is there going to be alimony? And how are you going to get on with your life so that you can find love again? 
um, and your kids are going to not circle the drain and melt down and have difficulty and get you out of this as quickly as we can with the least amount of damage. It's, it's, it's a lot of stuff, but I like yeah. that. That's see that what's amazing is that that sounds so much closer to the training to to the thing that you would expect a therapist to be able to do that I cannot imagine they're teaching you in in law not school. at all not right, even right close, like because right. what you're describing is what I think Chris Voss uh, the negotiation expert oh yeah would call I, I tax- watched his masterclass yeah oh yeah, yeah. yeah. you enjoy it yeah um, theoretic it, he he has agreed to come on the podcast this what? season actually uh, oh my god I'm gosh. still working on nailing him down because oh. he's hard to, he's hard to get a whole I, well, I, he's I, he's gonna negotiate yeah. with you right? <laughs> <laughs> of yeah. course he is yeah. he's yeah. gonna test you <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, but I've got a tentative date with him oh wow. I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm very excited. He calls that tactical empathy. Uh, you know, that that's all I could think of when you were describing that is like, you know, they don't train for that. And right. No, I mean, so in law school, they teach you how to be what we say is an appellate lawyer. So what an appellate lawyer does is when you have a trial and the judge makes a ruling, if you don't like that ruling, you take it to the appellate court. And what the appellate court is, you don't ask, you, there's no witnesses, there's no exhibits, nobody testifies. Mm. You're basically saying to the the judges in Connecticut, it's a three judge panel. You're saying, what the court did, and here's a transcript of what happened. Here's all the stuff that we filed. What the court did was wrong, and you should reverse it because of what they did was wrong. The lawyers argue it. They look at, they ask you some questions. They look at everything, and then they write a decision. Mm-hmm. That's an appellate lawyer. And so you teach, you're taught that in law school. Identify the issue, how to write, how to argue persuasively, mm-hmm. and you get a decision. That's what you're taught to be as an appellate lawyer, ostensibly, and how to think critically. You're not taught tactical empathy. Mm-hmm. You're not taught how to you know manage a client who's you know, borrowing $7,000 from their college roommate to pay your retainer and is wondering how they're going to survive because their husband, who's progressively become a worse alcoholic, is now in rehab, lost their job. The mortgage is going into foreclosure. Mm. The kid whose special needs is acting out and cutting themselves. Mm. She's got pressure from her job because she works for a dentist in Suffield and is trying to, you know, go to court but not get fired because it's a small dental office. And you're trying to work all that and tell them we need to get you through this. But if your husband's, you know, hired somebody who's difficult and he's pushing and the kids are falling apart and trying to keep all this together and then manage their expectations, there's nothing that'll teach you for that. You have to jump in and you have to do it and you have to help and you have to be willing to take calls after hours and you have to be willing to manage expectations and you have to be willing to cry and 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 hold their hand and uh, and and also be objective enough to give them good advice when they are absolutely, you know, at the floor of your office in the fetal position saying, how am I going to do this? How am my kids going to survive this? Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, that's, but, but I get up every day wanting to go help people do that because, and, and, and frankly, and a story that's, I think a good story here, which is how yeah. I'm a little bit different is my wife and I went out, my wife who's a stay at home mom, she was a librarian before we went out to dinner with a, another lawyer couple, which my wife usually dreads because we talk shop the whole time, you know, mm. but she's used to it and she can talk shop because she knows she works in the office a little bit. So she knows um, about the cases. But one of the, this other divorce lawyers said, you know, we were out, you know, and I was out with one of my clients, for, you know, former clients, you know, the one in 100 clients that becomes a friend. And Sarah looks at me and looks at her and says, one in 100 clients? You ever been to one of Rich's parties? 95% of his clients are there. Like, they become friends. And again, and that's part of the empathy. Like, I'm yeah. taking you through such a stressful, intimate thing. I see all your finances. I know, you know. When people were sleeping together last, how the intimacy Mm. faded in their relationship, how the husband or the wife was screwing around with the pool boy, whatever it is. So I'm, I'm into, I'm, I'm like a therapist. You're into all the most intimate things. And we're talking about custody, people's most prized possessions, not the right word, but prized, um, you know, things in their lives. And, and so what for me, I cannot not become friends with the person because I've taken them through this. And again, that helps sort of also build the word of mouth referrals because I've made that connection. And I'm not doing it for that purpose. It's just who I am and it's what I like to do and I want to help people. And if you help people and you're earnest and you're honest and you're empathetic, things will sort of build on themselves. That's what I find. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I I, I want to get to your chance encounter story because you know, you know, everybody knows who comes yeah. on the show. They're ready to talk. I got one, one more question on that point though. I just don't want, I, I want to leave this yeah, track yeah. too, uh, too quickly. I'm doing the math in my head and I was thinking about, okay, so eight or nine years ago, and that's roughly when you started the, uh, really leaned into this right. area of, of the work. That's also when you started 
a family and right. did that whole thing. And now you got three kids now, yeah. uh, which is, by the way, for those of us who are connected <laughs> with you on Facebook, is just a riot. Yeah, yeah. add uh, me you, on Facebook, please. You really help. have fun. We'll make sure that <laughs> we'll, we'll link, link something please. in the show notes, yeah. whatever you tell me I should link. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, oh, my your, kids are awesome. your kids are awesome. The photos are awesome. You're an amateur photographer. Or yeah, I don't yeah. want to say amateur, in the, but like yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're a passionate photographer yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. as a hobby. Uh, as, as yeah, I. the um, kids are all very beautiful thanks to my wife and uh yeah, they're great, and uh, they're all all very special. My five year old is going on fourteen, and uh, yeah, yeah oh, I bet. Yeah. So to that to that point, I'm really curious right now, as a lawyer, especially a family and divorced lawyer, has that training helped you in those negotiations with your kids, or have you actually, <laughs> or have you learned more about negotiating from your kids? Well, not the kids. Uh, my a therapist could probably spend a lot of time sort of wondering why I went into this as a, as a child of divorced parents. I was divorced once before. I didn't have kids, but I've been divorced. Oh, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, so I was married for ten years, but we didn't have kids. Um, so you know, figuring this out. Um, so what do I learn? You know, does does it? You know, is it one of these things where my unconscious brought me to this to say you're going to teach you not how to get divorced and screw your whole life up? How um, funny. Uh, you know. So, but um, no, it's um. You know, you learn, you know, so I don't know. So we could, I mean, there's a million things we could talk about, but one of the things you learn um, dealing with a lot of times psychologists get involved in cases, they do evaluations, you're in touch with your clients, mental health providers, because you want to mm. see sort of how they're doing. And one of the things, the number one thing you learn is what kills a marriage, mostly um, a variety of things do. But the number one thing in my view and what I've learned is empathy, lack of empathy. And the way to that manifests itself, and this is the story I tell is somebody says to you, you know, your wife says to you, um, comes to you and says, hey, uh, you say, hey, we're going to my folks for uh, Christmas Eve dinner. And your wife says to you, you know, I don't really want to go there. Your dad doesn't pay attention to me. He's, they belittle me or whatever they say that. And you say, oh, what, what are you crazy? Like everyone loves you. What are you forget it. You know, like you, you sort of downplay that instead of saying, oh, my God, I'm sorry. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Like, how do we we got to figure out a way through this? Like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Tell me what he does. Do you think it'd be helpful if we sat down with him? That's the difference between um, marriages that can last and marriages that fall apart when you erode um, that relationship with the lack of empathy. Mm. So that's one of the things that we see. Um, that's a, and then of course there's an affair. The affair doesn't kill the relationship. The relationship is dead long before that. Sure. Um, sure. But anyhow, that's one of the things that that you see. Um, sort of that lack of empathy. So I don't know. So what, so the, I think your, your question before I went on this tangent was you learn negotiating from the kids. No, toddlers are savages. <laughs> um, they, they, they make demands and uh, their you know, brains aren't wired properly. So there's nothing you can learn from them. You're just dealing, you don't know what you're going to get. It's inconsistent. Um, they're disordered, you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I don't learn from them. I, I learn. Um, I also try, if you were to ask 30 of the family lawyers what they like about me, I think they'll, you know, that I'm genuine, um, I'm honest with them and I want to help people. Yeah. And that I think helps also, they lower their guard too, because they're like, mm -hmm. oh, it's rich. He wants to do right. I'm not going to give him a hard time. I want to make this deal happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of my strengths as well. That example is so powerful. I also have divorced parents many times over each of them um multiple divorces uh and uh you know that's a big part of my my story uh and and things you don't realize inform who you become until you can look yeah. backwards right you know you look back and you go oh obviously i ended up in the field doing what i'm doing right. now talking about like how obvious is it that i ended up here but if you would ask me i never wanted to end up in this field i never even knew this field existed or what right so it's that's interesting that example though echoes the 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 example for relationships you just gave um i think echoes what's going on right now in the professional world too because you just described why the number one reason marriages fall apart is that lack of empathy right. well that's the number one problem in business relationships and it's the number one problem in employee employer relations as well we find this every year linkedin does the studies every year and uh laszlo bach the former head of human resources for google i use this example in all my presentations uh, he did this deep study at Google to find out why they were having an employee retention problem, right? Because if if you're any other company and you're having employee retention problems, you looked at places like Google, who are the top in the world, and you go, if only we had what they have, we wouldn't have employee retention problems, right? But if you're Google, you're the best of the best, and you're still having this problem. So what he found through this deep internal study that he now goes and consults for other organizations right. on is the number one reason employees 
leave, quit their place of employment is they don't feel like their hard work is being acknowledged. That's right. They're not valued. They're not valued. They're not seen. And, and they're Google not pays the most of anyone. And they'll take, and we will take less. People will gladly take less, not right. a lot less, but a little less. They'll take slightly worse benefits, less perks, a little bit less pay be happier. for a place that they feel valued. valued. And it's just so. And, it's, and, and that's yeah. what it is. And, you're, yeah. and, and, and your wife or your spouse needs to feel valued. Yeah. And you have to work at it all the time because you get frustrated and you get angry. Oh, yeah. And you're stressed out from work. And, um, but you got to make time to value yeah. that person. So let's, uh, let's turn the corner yeah. here in on to, uh, uh, on to, uh, do you want more coffee? No, I'm good. I can, ref- I can no, no, I'm good. I have, I'm we already... can edit this out. No, 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 it's good. I'm, uh, <laughs> it's too much caffeine. As you're going to stop. I'm like, ah! <laughs> so, uh, everybody comes on and I ask them for a chance encounter story. This could be personal or professional, uh, you know, some moment where, you met someone and either you impacted their life, they, yours, whether you stayed in touch with them or not, I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a professional one. It's somebody that we both know. Um, it's just, when I was starting my, um, you know, sort of going off on my own, um, you know, it's, it's feast or famine, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's really hard to start your own practice. Again, I wasn't doing the divorce work. I was just sort of finding work as I could and just trying to cobble things together and I, uh, I, I love good food. Um, and I took my wife to, um, what is, I think it's still called this down in, um, Ivoryton or it's, which is a hamlet of Essex. It's called mm-hmm. the Copper Beach Inn. And I had found it on, I don't know, uh, one of these, uh, reservations, open table or something. And, or I'd heard about it somewhere. I said, oh, let's go to Copper Beach Inn. Great little place. It's a, like a bed and breakfast kind of place. There's mm-hmm. 12 or 15 rooms. Um, and so we went there and we, they had a, a, there's a sort of a more formal dining room and then like a tavern, like a brasserie type of place. So we went there and it was maybe, I don't know, I think we, we were the, it was a Tuesday or something. It was sort of a Monday night and they always, the restaurant would always be open because they have rooms there. And usually restaurants close on Mondays, Monday's industry night. So if you ever go out to other restaurants that are open on Monday, usually cater to people in the industry that are off on Monday. (laughs) So all the good, like great parties you can go to on Monday nights. But anyhow, so we go there and we have this like lights out meal, you know, you're just, you know, you're just ordering stuff. And I remember it was like a, uh, this sort of pan seared chicken, very simple, but I mean, just sort of finishing the meal you're like like lights out good and the waitress um hi natasha i still i'm still friends with her uh, we actually became friends i actually shot her wedding uh she lives in uh in burlington now we've stayed in touch over these years because i just oh, made a connection with her added her on facebook and we've become friends and she's got a little girl and she actually came to visit us she's from guilford she now lives in upstate new york she came to see us when we were down at a beach house for the summer so i've huh. stayed in touch with her all these years this was maybe 2008 huh. so at the end of the meal she was very engaged server very uh, foodie centric, you know, we're talking about, you know, the, this came from Brian Miller's backyard and it was grown. Yes. Put picked yesterday. I don't know. It's just some, something like that, that just made, made me very happy. And the food was delicious. I said, who made this food? This food is exceptional. Lights out good. She says, it's chef Tyler Anderson. I said, really? I said, well, can I meet this guy? She says, well, sure. So she goes in the back and, you know, out comes Tyler, who's, you know, Tyler from Millwrights up the street and you know, Tyler. So Tyler comes out and I'm like, hey, you know, I just give him a handshake and say, wow, like this your food is really good. He's like, thank you. And he sits down. There was nobody in the restaurant. And uh, <laughs> he uh, tells me, you know, he grew up in uh, Long Beach, California, and then made his way to the East Coast of Vermont. And he's been, it was in Chicago at the Four Seasons, sort of bouncing around. And I said, oh my God, like, I just love your food. I want to come back. And um, he gave me, um, he gave me his um, business card. He says, hey, you're going to come back. Just, you know, shoot me an email. So I emailed him. Um, and, and my wife always jokes. I sort of worm my, pe- worm my way into people's lives. But <laughs> I, I look at it different. She jokes. But I, no, I'm like interested. So I write to him. And, and I love good service. And I love connections. And a lot of my friends always joke with me. that like, they, my nickname is Rich's. I got a guy, you know, like I got a guy. <laughs> so I like write to him. I got to come in. He's like, great. So he comes in. He has a great seat. And he like, next thing you know, he's like sending stuff out to us. Like, try this, try this. And before you know it, it's, uh, you know, he, he we, we get to talking more. We, we stay after. He invites us to a, a party that they're throwing there. Mm-hmm. He then tells me that he's trying to get his own restaurant. I link him up with somebody who then helps him find the people, the space at, there, at, which is now Millwrights, which is now six or seven years old. Very successful restaurant, Millwrights. I said, I'm a lawyer. I can help you out. You know, just keep me fed. I'm just trying to meet people. I'm not going to, you know, charge you anything. Just... Let's just, you know, just, just hook me up, you know, like just, you know, 
you know, I don't, I don't need much. I just want to help you and I, you'll help me meet people. And of course he's sort of this up and comer on the, on the, on the food scene. Yeah. He starts, we start hanging out. I didn't have kids at the time. Mm-hmm. We go to new Orleans together. He takes us to all these restaurants and you know, the chefs are feeding us. And then even here, he's, he would call me up on a, a Monday or Tuesday saying, Hey, I'm going to what was before millet two T now it's the present company. I meet that chef. And before you know it, he takes me to all these places and he says, this is my lawyer. You know, uh, you should hook up with him. And before you know it, people are calling me. I have work for you. I have work for you. I have work for you. Mm-hmm. And um, I wind up doing the deal that got him mill rights, wind up doing all the other joint, all the other restaurant we work for We thank you for that, yes, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes, it's great. And and then I meet all the other chefs. Pam Pados, who we know, was sure. met me through. And I still do work for Pam and for, for her place. So I met a ton of chefs. And again, I still do some of that work. So- like I said, I think I, I'm not all exclusively family. I have like 5% with, um, uh, with restaurant work and I still do that, but that got me sort of into the scene and, um, sort of out there and, and folks call me when there's a problem and people get divorced now and, mm. or they have issues and I can get them to people. And it was just that encounter that I said to this really engaged waitress, I love this food. Can I meet the guy who made it? Wow. Such a simple thing. Yeah. I was genuinely interested. I wasn't thinking about this is going to help propel my career and meet anybody. Right. I'm just doing the right thing. I want to meet this guy right. and sort of see like, wow, like I really, you know, tell me your story, man. Like, and we hit it off and now we're, you know, um, you know, we're, we're been friends a very long time. We've traveled together um, and we, you know, and he to this day will let me know when he's got a new dish, I'll pop in <laughs> kind of thing. So I don't know, that's, that, that's a sort of a chance encounter that sort of ties into me professionally that I think I, is a I love story. that story. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I, 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 it took me about uh, eight seconds to realize it was going to be Tyler. And I got very right, excited because right. I, I, I've always been personally curious about that. Uh, for those listening, if you ever passed through Connecticut, he's got a bunch of restaurants, but in, uh, in Simsbury, uh, we, uh, where, where, where I live, this Millwrights is just it's off the charts. Yeah. Uh, we actually, I took my wife, surprised her, took her there for our first wedding anniversary, and we did the whole tasting menu. Oh yeah. And uh, he and I and I knew I got in touch with him in advance, and because we had passed, oh. you know, we had crossed paths once or twice, and he came out at oh, one yeah, point, did said hello, did the whole thing, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know, which made me look like a rock star yeah. for my new wife at the time. Tyler right? is the hospitality business, and he's he, a multiple-time uh, James Beard Award nominee. Like oh, he's yeah. the he's the real yeah, deal. Yeah, he, and he's he's been on the Food Network stuff, right? He did. And, he, did and, he won second season of Chopped, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He was on uh, Top Chef. Uh, yeah, I got to get him on this podcast. Oh yeah, yeah he's we gotta, great. Oh yeah, he's. Tell uh, him talk. Oh yeah, um, he's great. He, you know, he's got he's tatted up. He was so, skateboarder. I mean, he, he's yeah. got a great great story. So what I love about that story you just told, and this will be great to take us into the end uh, end of this conversation, which went in so many different directions <laughs> than I ever. Yeah, I could yeah. have Never planned this conversation. <laughs> you notice I never turned my no, tablet on to look I, at my yeah. questions, and I didn't plan for this either. Right? I just sort um, of came in here first. So to be honest, before you came, I was just like, what do I ask a lawyer? I, you know, I just like I like this guy. But what do I ask a lawyer yeah. that's interesting? And this was probably <laughs> one of the most interesting conversations I've had in ages. So this is great. Uh, uh, what I love about that story is that so often when I do my workshops and I do my speeches and I write my stuff and I teach about connection and 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 on all this stuff, I, I teach it as a philosophy, as a life philosophy. And I think what a lot of people for, they they get this idea, like you said, skin deep. This idea of oh, you're just using these tactics to help get you ahead. And you're like, no, it doesn't work like that because you have no idea which person is going to get you ahead. It would be lunacy to try to do that. You'd never, the people you think are going to get you ahead, they can tell that's what you're trying to do and you're going to miss out on all the ones that would actually do it. So the the actual way to do what I call the three new people philosophy, because that's the book I wrote, right? But this philosophy of connection is to be genuinely interested in everyone you meet. That's right. Because you told that story, and that's just a survivorship bias. That's the story that led to something right. interesting. So that's why it's the one you're telling. But you probably this week have already had 20 or 30 chance encounters with people that are not going to lead to anything more than that beautiful 10 seconds or two minutes or 10 Connected minutes that with you another spent human, with them. Right. Right. Bingo. And I think that is such a good takeaway um, that all it takes is say, hey, who made this? Can I meet that person? It can lead to all these amazing things. It probably won't, and that's okay. Because even if all you'd ever done is had a nice conversation, you would have gotten to thank the person who made that great meal, and he would have gotten to feel really good about having impacted someone's life. Well, but it also creates, you know, if you're an energy person, you know, it, it's just yeah. your your sort of karmic energy. Yeah. You're doing the right thing. Um, but also, like, and I'll give you, I'll just sort of give you this as well. I've traveled a lot. I've been to India three times. Wow. Um, I'm a big believer in knowing certain ways to say hello in other people's languages, mm. how to say how are you. 
Um, and so like in India, I'm in sort of an India file. I love India. I told my mm. wife if I hadn't married her, I'd go to India and marry an Indian wife. <laughs> I love the food. I love the people. And I've traveled remote places in India where I'm the only white dude, you know, and, and people were just great. And I would just go and I'd learn. So like I learned how to say like a lot of the Indians that settled uh, here, Gujaratis, which is an area of India where Gandhi was from. Mm. A lot of the folks that um, own hotels or gas stations and whatnot. A lot of things are from Gujarati. And because mm. Gujaratis are known for very, very, you, I have a friend that you should get on here who's a Gujarati and they're known for their entrepreneurial. They always have three or four <laughs> side hustles. They're very entrepreneurial people. Huh. And so one of the things I learned how to say like, hello, how are you? So like I'll walk in and I can tell someone's Gujarati and I'll say it, or I'll say it in Hindi. I'll say like, hey, nice to meet you. And they'll look at me. They're like, their head explodes. <laughs> and then I talk to them about Indian food and, and you make that connection and say, you know what? Yeah. I care about your culture. And it's not, and again, I'm not looking for business from these people. Yeah. I want to, you know, I, it feels good to me. And if it feels good to you, you'll have a better energy about you. You make somebody's day and you never know where it'll lead, but it could lead somewhere great. And, but, but, but more importantly, it'll nourish you as a person and people, you know, being a friendly person, being a kind person, um, that makes you live a better life, I think. And so, but it'll also, it'll also help your business and it'll help your networking because people want to, do business with nice people and people that are good people, people that are genuine. Um, and so you can't fake it, um, but but you can certainly be more curious and, and 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 make an effort to care more. And you'll see the benefits of that. You may not see it right away, but it, you're 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 planting seeds everywhere. And 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 at some point you'll come back to it. And there's a there's a bouquet. Rich, I, I can't thank you enough for being sure. here, man. Thank you so yeah, much for this. Thank you. This was uh, this was fantastic, and uh, we'll have to let's all get together with uh, with Tyler at some point yeah. and have a good meal. Yeah, I'll <laughs> tell him to watch this, and he can uh, do a tasting menu for. Me. Fantastic. All right. Who else thinks Rich should be a motivational speaker? <laughs> what a closing! Uh, as promised, here are a few of my biggest takeaways from this episode. First, there are lots of different ways to answer the question, what do you do? Our instinct is to answer with our job title, but is that really all you do? We can choose to define ourselves pretty much however we want. When I sat down with Seth Godin on Season 2, Episode 1, we discussed the fact that he calls himself a teacher, not a marketer. Words matter. How we define our role in society dictates how we feel about ourselves and affects everything from our self-confidence to our happiness. Second, it's great to be connected, but you should also be a connector. Rich casually described a profound life philosophy when he said, whatever your problem is, come to me. I'll triage it and get you to the right person. You don't need to be able to solve every problem, but if you're the one who points friends, family, colleagues, and clients to the person that can solve their problem, you're indispensable. And finally, the number one reason relationships break down is lack of empathy. This is just as true at work as in our personal lives. I've said it before, it's not enough to care about someone. They have to feel cared about. They have to feel understood and valued. For all things Rich Rochland, head to the show notes on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com. You'll see links to his social and website, plus any of those fun extra videos or photos from the various wild stories we, uh, we got to talk about here. And before I let you go, I did promise to tell you a little bit more about the Public Leadership Mastermind opening up in May. The punchline is this. Times of crisis reveal true leaders. The Great Recession of 2008 to 2010 gave us Instagram, Venmo, Groupon, Uber, Pinterest, Slack, and Square. While most people, most teams, most organizations are shrinking and hiding, you can do the opposite. You can double down on human connection in an isolated world. The rules are gone. Someone is going to rewrite them. For once, shouldn't it be you? The Leadership Mastermind revolves around one simple principle. Leadership is not a title. It is a choice. In this three-month intense program, you will build leadership skills, not because I'm there, but by leveraging the power of the group. I'm simply a facilitator. I'm there to ask the right questions in the right way at the right time. But you will get to develop creative solutions to pressing problems in your life with your team, in your organization, in your community, 
Because again, leadership is not a title. You can choose to be a leader. All of us are smarter than any of us. And I can't wait to see what you lead us to in the mastermind. So head to brianmillerspeaks.com slash join. There's very little information there at the moment. I'm only uh, letting people put their email in to jump on the waiting list. Over the next few weeks, I will roll out the specifics, the details uh, of the mastermind. As far as I know right now, it's going to be three months with two group meetings per month, plus each member will get one uh, one-on-one coaching call with me to work through your specific issues, uh, goals, and concerns. So again, brianmillerspeaks.com slash join, pop your email in, click the box that says public leadership mastermind waiting list, and you'll be hearing from me over the next few weeks. We do already have more folks on the waiting list than I will even have slots available, but I'm hoping we can get you in. That said, my name is Brian Miller. This is Beyond Networking, and we'll see you soon. Until I met Brian, it's safe to say I never had a good video conference. The technology was there, but the connection wasn't. Brian has a way about him that he can facilitate a meeting that makes everyone feel special and important. At the same time, he asks these amazing questions that get you thinking in a way that you just never would on your own. He made me feel comfortable from day one. He lifted up my confidence and his sessions were so focused and so productive that it didn't even take that much time with him to get me to the place that I needed to be. Uh, I've worked with Brian over the last several months, in fact almost a year now we've been uh, working together and he's been absolutely fantastic Uh, and he's just a super guy and couldn't recommend him more highly. And let me just tell you, when I reached out to Brian the first time, I could tell that this guy is so genuine, knows his stuff. I mean, hello, TEDx with over 3 million views. Get on a call with this man and work with him because it is the best investment you could possibly make at one of the most important milestones in your career. So Brian, thank you so much for such an amazing experience. You're an incredible, incredible coach. And I'm so fortunate to have worked with you.